Individuals and businesses with tax problems listen carefully. Do you feel like you're losing control over your finances? If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services and take advantage of the Fresh Start program and new laws that may allow us to negotiate a settlement for the lowest amount possible. Our team of tax attorneys and enrolled agents can stop collections and get you protected so you can take control of your financial future. Tax Mediation Services is accredited by the Better Business Bureau. Call now for a free case review and a price protection guaranteed quote. Call Tax Mediation Services now at 800-616-4080. That's 800-616-4080. 800-616-4080. This is Radio Influence. This is the place that the UFC and Bellator come to for the inside scoop of what's going on in the world of mixed martial arts. The doors of the gym are opened up just for you. We are the MMA Insiders on Radio Influence. Coming up on this week's edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast, I am going to be joined by Bjorn Rebney, the former chairman and CEO of Bellator MMA, now an advisor with the Mixed Martial Arts Athletes Association. We're going to talk about everything that is going on with that association, also talk a little bit about perception versus reality, what are his intentions with the MMAAA, why is he part of the solution for fighters in the UFC. Also, we're going to talk about USADA, Reebok, Dana White's comments on the UFC Unfiltered podcast. So much to get into with Bjorn Rebney. Also, we'll get into the 8% of revenue numbers that Bjorn is throwing out there, CAA, conflicts of interest with WME, IMG, all of that coming up here momentarily with Bjorn Rebney. But before we get to Bjorn, I want to let you know about my sponsor, Fight TV, which is a go-to app for MMA fans and practitioners, live pay-per-views, TV tapings, full-length matches, interviews, movies, and documentary. It's your gateway to everything fighting, MMA, wrestling, boxing, and more, live on your phone or your TV. Get a front-row seat to live wrestling, MMA, and boxing action anytime, anyplace. Get Fight Free and see what's streaming now for you. You can download the Fight app by going to fight, F-I-T-E dot TV, forward slash radio influence, forward slash, and once again, that is F-I-T-E dot TV, forward slash radio influence, forward slash. So I did have a chance to catch up with Bjorn Rebney. We talked a little bit about Bellator, but mostly we talked about the Mixed Martial Arts Athletes Association. It's about an hour-long conversation that I had with Bjorn, and we're going to play that for you right now. It's been a long time since I have wanted to talk to this man, and finally, I, I guess he's out of Mexico. Bjorn Rebney, we know the, the story of that is much greater than what people think it is, but Bjorn, I, I really do appreciate the time. and it, It's been a long time. How's it going? It's going good. How are you doing? It, uh, it feels like you and I talked about 20 minutes ago. But it was actually like two and a half years ago, but uh, it's good to, good to talk to you again. It's a lot different than sitting back, uh, you know, in Thackerville, Oklahoma, or, or as we like to call it, wacky thacky. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a different situation, but a good situation. So it's good to touch base with you again, and uh, it's good to be sitting where I'm sitting right now. And of course, we're we're going to get into everything that is going on with the with your advisory role with the MMA AA. Uh, so many so many things to talk about. And I, when I knew that we were going to have you on, and first off. It's been eight days since that, that press release has come out, six days since the conference call. What's what's the last, like, two weeks been like for you? It's been busy. It's been busy. It's been uh, – there's been a lot going on. But, you know, fortunately, we had two-plus years to prepare for this. So all the right people are in place. Um, all the right triggers are being pulled. Um, so it's, it's going good. It's been a, it's been very busy and it's been coming at us fast and furious, which is what we had hoped, um, and we had expected. So it's been a lot of work, but it's been good work and it's what we'd hoped would happen that people would react to it and that 
fighters would react to it and that the media would react to it, the fans would react to it, and that you could start sharing some of the real numbers and have people legitimately take notice of something that's terribly wrong. When the press release came out, uh, you were, were the guy that everyone looked at on that press release. They, they really didn't talk about the fires involved. And as I, I listened to the press conference, you hear you know the fires involved. But it made me think about a cliche I, I use in, in combat sports, and, and perception versus reality. Re, you know, people's perceptions may not always be reality. And when people hear the name Bjorn Rebney, they think a lot of things, whether it's Bjorn Rebney, the promoter, Bjorn Rebney, the man, or, or now Bjorn Rebney, uh, the advisor with the MMA, AA. What would you say to people's perceptions versus what reality is when it comes to yourself? You know, I would say that part of the perceptions are accurate. Part of the realities are accurate. You know, everybody's got to subjectively make their own decision on, on how they perceive someone or, or um, whether they like or dislike somebody, you know, you and I had talked about it over a number of interviews in the past, running a mixed martial arts promotion is a tough business. And it's difficult for anybody in that position that is um, running an organization like that and doing 30 events per year and distributing, distributing your con- content to, you know, hundreds of countries around the world and et cetera. It's difficult to position yourself so that everybody likes you a lot. Um, you try to do the best you can. You got to make decisions for the business, and you know people are going to have their perceptions, and and they they should have their perceptions. Being a fight promoter is not one of those jobs at the head as a CEO and chairman position where everybody is going to look at you um, in a favorable light. Not every fighter is going to look at you in a favorable light, um, but you know you, you do the best you can. You battle with those decisions, you make them, and and the results fall where they may. And I think that the truth lays somewhere in the middle. I think the truth is some someplace in the middle on perception versus reality. You know, look, one of the things that I'm super proud of is particularly as it results to what's going on here is that, you know, the best year I ever had in fight promotion ever, I paid 53% of our overall gross revenues to the fighters. And when you look at that um, and you look at what the UFC is paying, what WME, IMG, UFC is paying, it's 8%, it's 8 cents on the dollar. So, that's something I look at, I'm proud of, um, and, and it's something that, that I think is absolutely where it should be, absolutely where the comp level should be. It should be at 50% or more. That's what every other league in this country's got. So, you know, I, like I said, too long of an answer to a shorter question, but I think um, I respect people's opinions, but I hope what people will do is look at what we're trying to do here, look at what the objectives are, the team that's in place, and the fighters that are supporting it, and support the initiative. I definitely want to get into that 8%, 53% number as we go on. But you know, when – and I remember during the conference call, a lot of people – I think the, the popular um, tweet or, or statement that was going around the MMA community is, what is Bjorn Rebney's intentions? What would you say to those people that are questioning what your motives or intentions are with your involvement with this? My intentions are super clear. My intentions are – an enormous settlement for past and current UFC fighters, 50% of overall gross revenues and a benefits package that includes pension and retirement and healthcare. Those are absolutely my intentions. And I've worked diligently over the last two years to put the team in place and the financial support in place and the right athletes in place and the right marketing and public relations personnel in place, the right strategic advisors and lawyers in place to accomplish that. That is my intent. And that is the plan. And that is what's in it for me is to be able to change this dynamic. Um, You know, you get, I've been on the other side of the fence. And so I have certain intel and I've got certain knowledge of the industry that, that very few people in in the world have and information and experience is power. And, you know, one of the things that my parents taught me is that with power comes a responsibility to do certain things. This is what I'm doing. And so, you know, the results, look, the good news here is, is we are positioned to win. We have the team in place to win. We have the fighter support to win. We are positioned to win. So the results will speak for themselves. You, as you guys were were building this and obviously to the announcement, there's been other uh, associations or unions out there. There, There's the MMAFA with Rob Macy, who has been doing this for 
about a decade now, and you know it was back in July when the PFA was announced by Jeff Boris and, and Lucas Millbrook. Lucas no longer a part of that organization, in particular PFA because I, I think that you know they just wanted to help UFC fighters, just like the MMAAA wants to help the UFC fighters. When you saw that introductory press conference, what was your thoughts? Well, my thoughts were that strategically it was a blunder. And when you come out of the box, your strategy from a launch perspective has got to be on target. And you have to be, you have to have a clear understanding of what's going on and what's at stake and what the ramifications or repercussions can be for the, the form that you take. Um, as I've said, and I've, I've tried to be super clear on this, a union today for mixed martial arts athletes in the UFC is the wrong structure because it will delay the process for years, probably upwards of four years. There'll come a time when all the, all the issues are resolved and when the WME IMG UFC conglomerate is ready to resolve all the issues and settle, pay a large settlement, increase the comp numbers to 50% and, and deliver a, a comprehensive benefits package, when this association will need to turn into a union because the UFC will demand that in order to establish what's called an antitrust exemption. But currently, today, the union option is a very, very bad option because of the delay that it will, uh, that it will cause to the fighters to fight the fight that matters. Unions do incredible work. Unions do amazing work in this country. Um, and some of the advisors that have stepped up and helped us have been the heads of unions. But uh, that's, not the, that's not the form that this fight should take for USC fighters today. It should take that form when the settlement is finalized, everybody has agreed on terms, and then that request is made as a last request by the UFC in order to finalize. You mentioned about, uh, you know, obviously you want to get the revenues up, but there's other things. And one of the things you mentioned is health care. And Joe Warren, his podcast, has talked about the difficulties he's had in obtaining health care. How, how, how hard is it, do you believe, for a fighter to actually obtain health care? And is it financially possible for an organization to acquire this type of coverage to make sure fighters are, are covered, not just on fight night and during the training camp, but, you know, 365 days a year? Yeah, it's absolutely attainable. And it is particularly attainable, Jason, with a company that's operating at 50% margins on $600 million in revenue. Um, the, the acquisition and the procurement of legitimate, comprehensive, all-encompassing coverage for mixed martial arts athletes, which is just a basic requirement, is simply a money issue. It's simply a money issue. It is, it is accessible. Companies will write the policies, and you can get it as a promoter without any question. So it is simply an issue of forcing the hand of the UFC to do what is right and what is, especially in this sport, where, you know, you have fighter after fighter after fighter that gets injured, can't fight, they've got no comp, they have no disability, have no protection. I mean, look at what Major League Baseball players have. The Major League Baseball players' health care plan is widely considered the best health care plan that exists in this country, not just for athletes, but for corporate workers, for corporate executives at any company you go to, whether you're working at top companies like Toyota or Apple, Major League Baseball Players Association, the, the coverage that Major League players have is considered the best coverage in the country. And once you have four years of service, you keep that policy for life. Your family is completely covered. You know, I mean, you look at a sport like baseball where nobody's getting punched in the face. Nobody's getting kneed in the head. Nobody's getting concussion after concussion. You sign a four-year, $40 million deal in Major League Baseball, you walk in and do fielding practice the next day and you screw up your knee, you get every dollar of that $40 million. You sign up for a UFC fight for a company that's got margins that far, far, far exceed Major League Baseball, and you get injured the first day of training camp or the last day of training camp when you're getting ready to get on the flight to go to the fight, and you've got nothing guaranteed. So it is it is that much of a messed up system. It is that much of a, of a horrific system for the fighters, and, and um, it has to be changed. Since I, I announced that, that you were going to be on here, I've had a lot of people in the industry reach out to me. And, you know, various people ask me, hey, I'd like to hear this, hear this. But one of the things I thought of is you've, you've made it clear that this is for UFC fighters. 
what would you say to non-UFC fighters that are on the quote-unquote regional scene? Um, they get involved in a situation where they they feel they're not getting right. What would you say to those guys? Of is there maybe there a plan down the road that you are looking to help out those guys? Sure, conceivably. But when you look at the NFL Players Association, the NFLPA covers the NFL, and it addresses issues and enters into collective bargaining agreements with the NFL because that's the one player in the space. There are semi-pro football leagues around the country that pay their athletes, but the NFLPA doesn't represent them. The MLBPA, uh, represented by Tony Clark, doesn't represent um, players that play in a whole variety of, of second, third, and fourth-tier professional baseball leagues. So it is intended to address the enormous gap that exists with the UFC in pay and lack of benefits and lack of comp for the last decade plus where the UFC has been making enormous, enormous profits on an annual basis. That's what it's intended to address. Could there come a time in the future, years from now, when it has a more all-encompassing reach? Conceivably. But at this point, it's focused on the number one undisputed controller of the mixed martial arts universe, which is William Morris Endeavor, IMG UFC. You mentioned about MLB, and at that conference call, you mentioned about J.P. Aaron Sebia being involved. What, what's, what exactly is his role in what is going on? J.P.'s working with us on the organizing front. One of the things that, that and I've known J.P. for a while, and, and um, he's picked my brain about what's going on in the mixed martial arts world with the UFC and, and how egregious the pay scale is and how bad the, the lack of existence of any kind of benefits package is. And so JP was his team's um, major league baseball players association rep. So he's intimately familiar with these issues. And he said to me, he said, look, I want to help. Um, these are complicated issues and I know firsthand what they can do for somebody like me. I know what they do, what we receive by way of healthcare. I know what our disability plan is. I know what our average comp and salary is and how we got there. I know every single year we receive spectacular checks for licensing. I mean, you realize that Major League Baseball players this year received $65 million alone in licensing payments. $65 million alone in licensing payments, meaning that it, the amount of money that Major League Baseball players made for licensing deals cut through MLBPA far, far, far exceeded every purse that was paid to every fighter on every UFC show last year. So the retirement plan, the matching plan with the ownership, if the players want to put money, the pension plan in and the early vesting on the pension plan, the drug policy and the arbitration plan, these are all second nature things to a guy like JP and things that that he looks at and says, well, if it wasn't for the Major League Baseball Players Association, if it wasn't for Tony Clark, if it wasn't for that team, we wouldn't have these things. And he said, I, I want to be a guy who flies around the country with you and lets these guys know, you know, before I get, before I go back in the spring and hit home and get ready to hit home runs in Major League Baseball, I want to let these guys know what's at stake and what it should be, what the system should look like for them. And so he's been, an, a spectacular asset to us and, and was at the announcement and is going to be traveling around meeting with guys at gyms with me and with the team and with Zach Light and with all of our organizing team. One of the things that has been brought up, and, and obviously since uh, you know your exit from Bellator, a lot of things have changed in the MMA industry, and particularly with the UFC, and obviously one of those is the fact of you know selling for $4 billion in WME. And, and people have brought this up. For the MMAAA, do they view uh, WME IMG as having a conflict of interest in owning the UFC when, you know, the fact of they are a management company? Well, I think the biggest, the biggest conflict of interest that William Morris Endeavor IMG has is the basic tenet of what a talent agency is supposed to do. A talent agency's focus. A talent agency's mandate is to represent talent, meaning athletes and entertainers, and to get them a bigger piece of the pie, to get them more money, to get them a larger stake, a larger piece of equity in whatever venture they're involved in, whether it be playing for a baseball team or fighting in a fight or, um, you know, 
creating a new album or, or performing an emotion picture or performing on a TV show. That, that's their job. That's what they're charged with doing. So for the conflict for me, as I see it, is that William Morris Endeavor IMG is violating every tenant of what a talent agency is supposed to do. They are running a company, telling their investors that they're generating a 50% margin on $600 million in revenue, that they're going to increase those revenues substantially by, and I quote, cutting costs. And who's harmed by that? Who suffers the brunt of those actions? Fighters? Nobody else. Fighters. So the conflict of interest is that your it is very analogous to a fireman setting fires. It's just, it is as counterintuitive to what an agency is supposed to do for its clients and for athletes and entertainers uh, as anything you could conceive of. Nothing is less in line with what an agency should do than what these guys are doing. And the fact that, that their clients and that everyone in the entertainment industry isn't in an uproar about this is something that we're going to expose. And I'm telling you that they will be because it is as, as wrong a position as someone can take uh, running a company like that. What would you say to the people who go, this is CAA having a very public battle with WME? Because you look at four of the five fighters that were on there, they're represented by CAA. Yeah, and and you and I haven't discussed it, but I've answered that, and I'll be happy to answer it again. CAA is absolutely not backing this venture. CAA has not given us a dollar. CAA does not back the Mixed Martial Arts Athletes Association. What CAA has done... And the reason that four of the athletes um, on the board of the Mixed Martial Arts Athletes Association are CAA clients is because unlike WME IMG, CAA is actually supporting their athletes. CAA is actually stepping up and saying, yeah, these numbers that you're telling us about are outrageous and we support your mission and your fight to dramatically alter that pay scale, to secure pension benefits and real health care benefits and retirement benefits and a say in drug testing policy. CAA is supporting their athletes, which is what any decent agency would do. Any agency that you find in the sports and entertainment world, whether it's Excel or whether it's Athletes First or any real sports agency would stand behind their clients. Mike Fonseca represented Gil Melendez when I was negotiating trying to sign Gil Melendez to Bellator. And Mike Fonseca was one of the only guys that I talked to who said, well, of course we're going to look at other options. Of course we're going to try to raise comp as far as we can possibly raise it by leveraging one group against another. That's our job. That's what we do. That's what we're charged with. We didn't become agents so that we could make our clients less. We became agents so that we could make our clients more. So that's, that's an agent being a pure agent. How do I get my client more money? How do I make the athletes and entertainers that I represent, how do I get them a bigger piece? So, yeah, when I was approached about doing this two years ago and I had to secure athletes for it, I went to the guy who had ex- expressed no fear or concern for the UFC he was only concerned with what was best for his clients, and I laid out the numbers. So that's, that's as simple as it gets. You go to the people that you believe you know um, share a vision for what's, what's right, and you try to explain to them what that vision is and how you're going to go about carrying it off. When you're going and meeting with fighters, and, I mean, you know, and you know that you know, there, there's people out there that, that like you, there's people out there that hate you. How many times is it more one of those things of you know when you're going to meet with a fighter about uh, this association that they've got their hands folded, they've got their guard up, and basically is it almost like you're, you're, you have to become a salesman? No, it's not like you have to become a salesman. It's like any situation with somebody that you've never come in contact with. Um, 
you, you just, you have a conversation like the one you and I are having. And I've had probably two dozen of those in the last five days. Um, you know, and I'll be having them up north on Thursday with, with JP and I'll be, you know, we're, we're meeting with athlete after athlete after athlete. It's just about talking and answering questions. You know, just you've experienced it, Jason. You, you, you hear things about people and you hear rumors or you see tweets um, and you don't really know that person or you don't really know what their ideals are or what they're shooting for. And so you meet them. You know, most people just meet them and say, you know, look, what you're saying sounds good. I've heard this or I've heard that, but let me just meet you. Um, and, and to date, you know, those conversations have been really comfortable because the guys, the one thing that you've got going for us here, the one thing that's working for us very substantially is every single fighter in the UFC, whether it's the biggest name or whether it's the newest fighter fighting on the undercard of the smallest show, knows that the system is rigged against them, knows that the numbers are completely out of place, knows that they are um, skating on incredibly thin ice at every single moment. They've got no protection. They've got no safety net. Every guy knows that. Every man or woman fighting in the UFC knows that. So there's no, you don't have to convince anyone of that because they all know it to be true. They're all experiencing it firsthand. What you have to do is talk through with them. What's the strategy? What's the plan? Who's on board? How are you going to implement? How are you going to make it work? And we have really good answers for all those questions. When we talk about fighter issues and the issue that really the two, I think they're kind of in a way tied together. It's the the Reebok apparel deal the UFC did, and also uh, USADA. And look, and I'm all for additional drug testing. Always have been, but this was this was something that was not collectively bargained for. This was just, all right, you have to do it. What is the MMAAA's thought on the Reebok deal, and also on the USADA deal with uh, UFC fighters? Well, I mean, two things, and they're two completely separate issues, but they they run down a common path. They're dictatorial mandates with no leverage or negotiation from the athletes who they affect. So what you have here is two examples in different areas, one of which on the Reebok side takes money out of athletes' pockets, and another on the drug testing side, which can... Uh, derail a fighter's career or ruin a fighter's career, both of which were mandates by the UFC and both of which were not negotiated in good faith with any representation on behalf of the athletes. So they both run down the same path. They both follow the same path that Dana has followed um, for years and years and years. And that path is we'll make the decisions and we will force them down your throats and you will accept them. And they both follow that path. They're, they were they were both creations out of the UFC corporate offices and their private elevators and their wait staff who served them their private meals, and there was no say by any of the athletes. That would never happen in any other sport. That mandate. So it, it it just follows along a very clear line that the, the UFC is drawn in the sand, and that line's got to be crossed at this point. When you were the chairman and CEO of Bellator, your organization came under under fire and, and for you know drug testing, which there was we talked about earlier perception versus reality, and, and I think people didn't realize that yes, there was drug testing going on. It, it, as you go back and look back on it now, do you wish that maybe you would have been more um, more transparent about the drug testing that was going on in Bellator? Well, the, the interesting thing about drug testing is is that from a state mandated perspective, every single promotion that puts on any kind of an unarmed combat event, any kind of a mixed martial arts event or boxing event is subject to the same state requirements as it relates to um, MRIs, as it relates to blood tests, as it relates to a variety of different tests. Some more voluminous than others. Some some states are very small and, and require very few tests. Some require uh, many, many tests. I'm a, I was always a bigger fan of the people who require many, many tests because I think it provides a better level of protection. But, you know, the 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 one-off decision by the UFC to implement its own policy with a group that it hires for whatever reasons it has um, has shown itself now on a number of occasions to be a faulty system. But at its core, it was a building built on a, a bad foundation, and that is that the players had no say in it just like the players have no neutral arbitration mechanism for any kind of dispute they have with the UFC. UFC doesn't like it. They just shut a player, an athlete down. So it, 
again, it just follows that line. I think a lot of people may not remember this, but you actually lost a fight. I believe it was Bellator 98 when Joe Warren was not cleared by the Mohegan Commission because of, um, you know, some questionable medicals. Yeah, and that happens consistently across the expanse. That's the way it's supposed to work, is that there are supposed to be medical professionals at a very high level who, um, who have the discretion and the authority to call off fights or to stop fights when they believe that the fighter's health and safety may be at issue. I mean, you know, you know, Joe Warren, he's Joe Warren would charge over broken glass in the machine gun fire in a pen full of pit bulls. I mean, Joe Warren has no off button and no reverse. So any, and that's what the mentality is of the vast majority of fighters in every organization. That's their thought process. So you have to have um, a, a practice medically that's designed to protect them. But to design that practice, to design that safety net, the fighters should be engaged. The board of the association should have a say in what that policy looks like, what those drug drug testing policies look like. Are they random? Are they not random? How are they conducted? Who conducts them? Why are those people being chosen, et cetera, et cetera. Having those things forced down the throats of athletes in a professional organization like the UFC that's the most valuable property in sports history is counterintuitive to everything we know about sport. How much have you, I don't know how much y'all have looked into this, but have you looked into the arbitration process of USADA? I mean, particularly John Jones obviously just went through it. Do you, if you have looked at it, do you feel it's a fair process to the fighters? I think across the board, it's an unfair process to the fighters and and not because of the hyper-specific elements of it, because we could talk about that for hours. I just think it's an unfair process to the fighters because they had no say in its creation or its execution. It's an unfair process because the UFC and Dana and Lorenzo were able to sell their company for over $4 billion because of the fighters. That's what sold the UFC, was the money that the fighters generated via a very specific and and very direct source of revenue streams. So when you're able to build up a company that's more valuable than any company in the history of sports, and you do it on the blood, sweat, and tears of fighters, when you make decisions that can impact those fighters' lives, their ability to make money, their ability to pay the rent, to put food on the table, that has to be a mutual decision. So before you can even get to analyzing the pros and cons of that actual policy, you have to look at the underlying tenant that it was a policy that was mandated that had no say from any representation from the fighters. It just makes it wrong on its face. And your good friend, Dana White, uh, he has come out and spoke about you, and I know there's probably a lot of my listeners that have not heard what he said, and this was from the UFC Unfiltered podcast. I'm going to let you hear where he talked about you and also uh, the MMAAA. Listen, I don't know know enough about it to, to really speak on it, you know. The only thing I need to know is the biggest scumbag in the history of combat sports, Bjork, is, is, is involved in this thing. And if you're a fighter, listen, there's, there's three unions out there now all battling against each other. And if you're a fighter, these guys are all looking to get in your pocket. It's another business. It's, it's, it's a business where guys are going to make money. And as a fighter, if this is what you want to do, you got to figure out whose hand you want in your pocket. And I guarantee you, you don't want Bjork's uh, hand in your pocket. You know what I mean? This guy is one of the biggest. The, oh, the one thing that I do know that came out of this thing is this scumbag who knows nothing about our business is talking to, he says, yeah, they only pay the, the, the fighters 8%, uh, uh, you know, of the revenue. I hope you're talking about Conor McGregor, okay? <laughs> yeah, we're paying 8% of the revenue. You must mean Conor McGregor, right, Bjork? You stupid motherfucker. Um, oh, Bjorn, you mean? Is it Bjorn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The old Bellator yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, so yeah. you think there's a they, motive they for him? Saying, you know, when I was a promoter, I paid 53% of the revenue because there was no fucking revenue. <laughs> now you're paying 53%. There was no fucking revenue. Listen, if that's the way we're going to gauge this back in the old days, then I was paying 250% of the fucking revenue. You know what I mean? Right. 
what a fucking piece of shit this guy is. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, that. my God. From the guys that fought over there and dealt with him. <laughs> Yo, Jimmy, I'm telling you, I heard, I was surprised to see him standing with the guys when I saw a picture of the Yeah, guys. listen, if yeah. you're going to have a guy in your pocket, you know what I mean, and you're a fighter, you might want to go out and ask some other fighters, you know, sure. what, what their uh, opinion is of this fucking scumbag. So do you think there's you know? a motive for him, Dana? Because uh, do, you th- do you think that he wants that? Yeah, he doesn't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> no, the motive is he's unemployed. Yeah, that's a pretty good motive. Bjorn, how would you respond to what Dana White had to say there? My response would be simple. Pay your fighters 50% of your revenues, just like what every other major sports league in this country pays. Provide them with a pension plan, some kind of safety net for the guys that in their mid-30s are going to be dealing with CTE, with horrible injuries. Pay them a settlement for the last decade of paying them a, a fraction of what they deserve. And you'll never hear from me again. People have mentioned the 8% number you have put out there. How, how did, did y'all guys come up with that number? It comes from their actual numbers. It comes directly from them. It's their real numbers. You'll notice that the simple response and the reasonable response that anybody with ethics or morals would have would be, here, let me share all of our numbers with you so that you can see exactly what we paid our fighters. But they're not willing to do that. Of course, they're not willing to do that. Because if they did that, everybody would see the level of gluttony and the level of greed in black and white on paper. So until they do that, um, it's not even worthwhile to respond to commentary like that. What would you, the numbers. What would you say to people that don't believe the the number you're you're putting out there that your best year as a promoter you paid fifty three percent to the fighters? I, you know, I would say the numbers are what the numbers are. The one thing about numbers is that they don't lie. There's no way to contradict numbers. Numbers don't lie. So you, when you have numbers and they're real numbers and they're legitimate, there are spreadsheets, there are Excel spreadsheets, there are pro formas, there are innumerable documents that back up those numbers. So for the UFC, they should share those numbers. They should put them out. They should disclose them. If, if the numbers that we're quoting are incorrect, if, for example, Jason, you look at, I mean, nobody asks about the numbers. Nobody takes a dive into the numbers. Just, just by way of example, and this is just one number, but it's one that nobody ever talks about because it's relevant and it, and it matters. And it's a great comparison. Last year, last year, the UFC paid $55.4 million to its employees. Last year, just so everybody's clear, the UFC paid $55.4 million to its employees. This is directly from their own documentation. That's $55.4 million to the people who work in their offices, their staff. That's 20% more than they paid last year to every UFC fighter who stepped into the UFC cage and who risked their lives and who put future brain damage on the line. So you want to talk real numbers? If somebody wants to get into a real debate over real numbers, look at how much you paid your staff who showed up in UFC logo to peril and went to work every day and try to explain to fighters who are dealing with the repercussions of fighting the octagon why your employees make 20% more than the fighters who stepped into the cage over the same period. Those are real numbers. That's not a joke. That's not somebody sitting at a press conference in a tight black T-shirt screaming and yelling and using profanity. Those are honest-to-God real numbers. So ask somebody who's blustering and screaming and yelling and using profanity to explain why his staff made 20% more than guys that are putting their lives on the line. If he's got a good answer for that, I'll be I'll be more than willing to stop talking. 
one of the things, and it's a word that has been associated, is the UFC being a bully. And I want to play this comment from Dana White, which is about Donald Cowboy Cerrone, and kind of want to get your thoughts if this is, if this is just a classic example of how you feel the UFC is being a bully. The fighters can go out and do whatever they want to do. They're, they're all grown men, man. Sure. And, and in life, you, you know how it is. We, we all have these paths to walk down, and, and, and this is what these guys, you know, I, I'm a little shocked, I'll tell you this, that Cowboy Cerrone didn't give me a call. You know what I mean? If, if you're that unhappy and whatever, let me tell you this, too, and, and, and not to be whatever, but first of all, he's only main evented headline like three fights. Right? Fight nights. Right. Headline three fights in his career. Never held the title in the WEC. Never held the title in the UFC. Right? And a couple of years ago, he was on his boat. He gets into a beef, right, with a guy on another boat. He's in big trouble. Who does he call? He calls me. What do I do? I go out and find him the best criminal defense lawyer. And I spent over $100,000 of my own money. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you, you know, felt like he should have called you. Yeah, for Cowboys Zeroni. So, you know, when I see Cowboys standing up there, it's like, all right, really? Okay. Would you describe that as a bullying-type effort? And do you think that there may be other fighters who are thinking about publicly coming out in support of the MMAAA that may hear that and may decide that, Maybe they have a little fear of coming out for uh, publicly. When the UFC, Jason, got sold to WMEIMG, Dana White walked away with roughly $400 million. Every year prior to that, he was making in excess of $20 million a year. I can say it again. When the UFC sold to WMEIMG, Dana White, who just belittled Cowboy Cerrone, and talk crap about a gallant warrior who's fought in the cage innumerable times and who fans love, made close to $400 million. That man, that gluttonous pig. And he got $20 million a year on average before that to run the UFC. And he's got the cojones to step up and to belittle Cowboy. How many fights did Dana have? How many times did Dana step into the cage in the WEC and the UFC? But he made close to $400 million when the organization got sold. Please. Are you kidding me? Was there any consideration to postpone this announcement till after UFC 206 with, with Cowboy and Tim both fighting on that card? No. No. Tim's... I mean, we all know Tim. Tim's a, I'll make it happen, take charge. I can juggle, you know, 12 different things in the air at once um, type of guy. Timing was right. Team was right. And uh, and it was just, it was time to make the announcement. It's time to get out and do it. And Tim seemed to be the guy that was kind of taking charge of that conference call, even though there was a point during that conference call. It was like, okay, we're approaching the two-hour mark. Are we going to call this thing or not? Yeah, I mean, look, Tim, Tim, Tim is a, a take charge type of human being in every aspect of his life, whether it's on the battlefield or whether it's instructing the military or whether it's starring in a top television show or whether it's fighting in the cage or whether it's talking to fellow fighters. Um, you're not going to walk into a lot of circumstances or situations where Tim Kennedy is not um, the, the lead dog. So he, he, that, and that's a situation, a role he's super comfortable with. And uh, I think for anybody who's spent any time around Tim Kennedy, um, the vast majority of us be pretty comfortable with him in that role as well. Who would you say is the face uh, of the Mixed Martial Arts Athletes Association? Is it just simply the fighters? Yeah, I mean, I would hope it's the fighters. I would hope that it's I would hope that it's Tim Kennedy, and for and and what he stands for, and the backbone and the ethics that he has. I would hope that it's T.J. Dillashaw, and the incredibly eloquent way that he's articulated the problems and the issues that he's faced and that all fighters face. I would hope that it's Cowboy with um, his short, concise, but brutally direct analysis of what's going on in a speak that a lot of people understand and feel super comfortable with. I would hope it's the Michael Jordan of our sport 
George St. Pierre, who's been the most eloquent and, um, and, and ethical spokesman for this sport for nearly a decade. I would hope it's Cain Velasquez who doesn't say a lot, but when he does say stuff, it, it actually matters and it has impact. I, w- I would hope it's those guys. And I would hope it's the countless fighters who've reached out to us over the last, you know, five, six days. The people out there that um, that don't believe you're part of the solution to uh, correcting these fighters' issues, what would you say to them in terms of why you are part of that solution? I think it's just about my my expertise and my experience. You know, look, the, I know an awful lot about this sport. I know an awful lot about the business. I know a lot about the numbers and where the revenues come from, how the money's spent. I know a lot about the law that surrounds it. And I have a lot of experience and expertise in this particular space. So I think I can be, as a chief strategist for this association, I can be very, very helpful, very helpful in accomplishing what needs to be accomplished. And so, you know, that's why I got into this two years ago. That's why this started. And I think my experience and my expertise are important important parts of the equation. Is Tim Donher involved in this? No, I tried desperately to pick his brain on this because he's actually the brightest human being I've ever had the pleasure of spending time with on a consistent basis. He's got a real job now um, with a huge company up in San Francisco where he's taking them to the next level um, and helping another group build an organization to new heights. Um, I get the chance to pick his brain on a pretty consistent basis because he and I are super close friends, but um, he's not engaged on in this. He just he just allows me to buy him dinner and ask him a bunch of questions because he's, this, like I said, probably the smartest business person I've ever come in contact with. Some people may say that you could be using this to get back into the fight promoter game. Are, are you ruling out ever being a promoter again? I am solely focused on this. There were a lot of opportunities through a lot of different resources and a lot of different people to get back into the fight promotion business. And, you know, Jason, as you and I hadn't discussed it subsequent to Tim and I parting ways from, from Bellator, but, you know, the mixed martial arts industry was good to me. Um, and I'm in a fortunate position. So this is all I'm focused on. There's no ulterior motive. I don't have any other plan behind the scenes. This is it. And I think that with the plan we've got in place, the structure, the players, the athletes, the advisors, the PR teams, the marketing specialists, the backers, I think will be in a position to drive this home to a resolution in a relatively short period of time. And then I can go back to what I was doing before I got into this. In terms of business practices, how is your practices different at Bellator as opposed to what the UFC is doing? Oh, that's, I can't get into the specifics of how I conducted business when I was running Mm -hmm. my company for many years versus how the UFC does business. Um, And also it wouldn't be a hugely um, interesting conversation or interesting topic for a lot of people, but, um, you know, they were obviously different organizations run in different ways, different organizations, different structures, et cetera. What do you what do you miss the most about being a promoter? Probably the and you were around a lot of our of our events. I think the thing that I mo- I, I miss most is just um, the consistent interaction with the fighters, the consistent repetitive interaction with the fighters, because they're some of the greatest people, some of the greatest characters, some of the greatest. Um, folks I've ever been around. So that interaction on a consistent basis was really cool because I've got a, having been around fighters and combat sports athletes since I was just a little kid, um, I've always spent my life around them. I've always been around guys that fight for a living. And as you and I've discussed before, I think they're just a different breed of cat. Like in most mixed martial arts fighters are like people that probably should have been around in a different era. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're, they're at their core, they're warriors at their core. They're guys like Tim Kennedy, you know, they, they, they're drawn to this. The thing that most people, um, run frightened from, they embrace. And it's, it's such an, uh, 
a unique personality trait. And it's just one that I've been drawn to since I was a kid. I always just thought, you know, some kids thought that Batman or Superman or Spider-Man was the coolest thing in the world and, and et cetera, et cetera. I didn't. I thought the coolest thing in the world when I was a kid were fighters. I thought they were just, they were just balls ready to go. You know what I mean? I just, I always like, those were my heroes. So that interaction, being around those guys that do something that I just think is, you know, the greatest sport in the world is just, is, is something I miss. The good news about this is I get to be around them again. And when we're successful, I will have been a small part of making their situation better. And so when, that's a cool, cool. And when I announced that you were going to be on here, one of the responses I got was for somebody who used to work with you, Christian Print up there at Bellator, no longer with Bellator. He's back in the casino game saying that you were one of uh, his favorite bosses ever. I mean, I know that's a story that maybe you don't hear too much uh, associated with your name, but uh, it's, you know, obviously Bellator has changed a lot. The whole industry really has changed a lot. Just as you mentioned about, you're a fight fan. What, what, what type of fights get you excited to sit in front of the television and watch? Well, I was, I had a dozen guys over to watch Eddie fight Connor. Uh, you know, that was, I was excited to watch that. Um, and I watched fights consistently, you know, I mean, I, I, that fight was a big one, obviously, because I had contended for years that Eddie was the greatest lightweight in the world. And a lot of people laughed at me, uh, not the best, best lightweight in the world. Um, and I said he was for year after year after year. And then finally, after Tim and I were gone from Bellator and he made the transition over to the UFC, he proved it. He won the UFC lightweight title. He proved something I've been saying for many years that he was the greatest lightweight on earth. Um, you know, so that was an exciting, that was an exciting fight for me. Obviously the opportunity to watch Connor is, is a great opportunity. I mean, he's an anomaly. You know, he's got all the skills and he's also got Ali's mouth. You know, he's like the reincarnation of Ali in a different era. So, you know, that was fun. I just, you know, I still love the game, so I still watch fights. We've mentioned a lot about, uh, you know, the new owners of the UFC. And one of the things, and your expertise on this is greatly valued here because you know what TV deals are like. WMEIMG thinks they can get $450 million a year. I think they're crazy. Explain to me how you how you think they could even possibly get that amount of money per year uh, in today's changing television landscape, where you, you see amount of subscribers that you know. I know a lot of people like to point to ESPN, but it's all these cable networks that are losing all these subscribers. I don't see how someone's going to show out that kind of money for UFC content. Boy, that's a that's a big question, Jason. You know, look, you got to look at what they're making right now. They're making one hundred and forty million dollars right now. Um, this year from Fox, Fox is paying the UFC $140 million. That number increases. And then obviously over the next 12 months, they'll be actively pursuing other alternatives. Now, you saw WME, IMG plant stories about the excessive interest that they claim exists across uh, from ESPN and from NBC. And those are the type of stories that people like that plant in order to generate interest where interest may not exist people plant stories um, yeah <laughs> occasionally so you know you'll notice that there were no comments from from uh either their current partner at fox or nbc or espn confirming or denying the there being any interest at all but here's the reality at 140 million dollars right now with the debt that wme ing accumulated on this deal meaning that they basically have, and this is, a, this is a rough average number, but $2 billion in debt out there at an interest rate that you have to assume is around 7.5% with a five-year maturity rate, which means that they have about four and a half years now to pay off three-quarters of a billion dollars in interest alone. So they're looking at it and saying, well, we've got to increase our domestic licensing deal, meaning we've either got to get a lot more money from ESPN or from NBC, or we've got to get significantly more money from Fox. They've got to increase their pay-per-view buy rates. They've got to increase their international licensing fees. And like I said before on the call, when you're a top executive at a major television network and you're buying live, and I put parens around the world word live, when you're buying live sports uh, content, your boogeyman, the thing that you're most scared about, 
is labor strife, is the potential of a big labor problem. So the resolution of the issues that they've got now with fighters, which are issues that they absolutely have to resolve. The, the paradigm is so out of whack. They've got to fix it. But those issues are going to have significant impact on their ability to get anything close to what they want to get and what they've expressed they want to get. And yeah, those numbers are enormous. But here's the crazy part, and this all brings it home. This is the crazy part that brings the entire conversation home. At some point over the next number of months or years, the UFC will resolve these differences and come up with a structured settlement that will take the form of a collective bargaining agreement with its athletes. They'll pay for the past wrongs. They'll dramatically increase comp to 50%. They'll pay for a benefits package. The moment that's signed and the ink is dry, UFC fighters, men and women across the board, will be incentivized to work like crazed dogs to make the UFC more money because they'll be participating, just like NFL players and Major League Baseball players and National Hockey League players are incentivized to drive those numbers up to make the TV licensing deals bigger, to make the international licensing deals bigger, to make every aspect of that revenue stream larger. That'll happen. But it's not going to happen until this, these issues are resolved because you can't ask guys to put their life on the line. You can't ask guys to potentially risk being um, dysfunctional in their late 30s or 40s and having the kind of problems that MMA can cause without compensating them for it, without being fair to them. So can they raise that number here in the U.S. to 350 or 400 million? Not a chance, given the current situation. But Final if it's thing. resolved, potentially they can. Final thing, Bjorn, and I really do appreciate you taking this extended time to talk to me. Ali Act to MMA has been a topic that has been discussed. I don't. I've said this countless times. I don't think it's ever going to happen. Um, I just think there, there's too many hills to um, go over for even to even to potentially get to a floor. Um, what, what's your guys' thoughts on the Ali Act, and are you at all optimistic that this could ever get uh, you know to the floor and potentially be voted on? The issues here, Jason, are the three key issues that we're addressing. That's the only place where our focus is. Mm-hmm. It's not on. It's, I mean, we've all seen regardless of what side of the aisle you sit on or stand on, we've all seen what government looks like, how government functions, and I use that word loosely, um, and what can happen in the political process. So the the sole and exclusive focus of this association and of UFC athletes right now, given what's at stake, should be driving to a settlement, driving to 50% of revenues, and driving to a pension plan, which will include a say in drug testing policies, which will include all of the different elements that we've talked about. That's the only focus, to, to spend time and energy and effort and money um, trying to jump through those different hoops is not an appropriate use of time, given what's at stake right here. Bjorn, I really appreciate time. It's been a long time. We'll have to uh, not make it every two years that we have these these type of conversations, but I really do appreciate it. As I've told you in the past, I, I, I thank you for all the time you, you have given me in the past. I don't think I'd probably be where I'm at right now if, if you didn't give me that, that time in the past, but I really do appreciate it, Bjorn. You got it. It's good to talk to you again, and we'll talk soon. And there you have my conversation with Bjorn Redney. It's been uh, two and a half years since I've had the opportunity to talk to Bjorn. It was great to hear his insight and exactly why uh, he is involved with the Mixed Martial Arts Athletes Association. A lot of interesting things there. Uh, you know, some of my takeaways from that conversation I had with Bjorn were about healthcare, non-UFC fighters, conflict of interest with WME, IMG. Also, I, I think something that really has not been brought up, saying that Tim Donaher is not involved. You know, I know that was one of the questions that I got on social media was, is Tim Donaher involved with the Mixed Martial Arts Athletes Association? Also, was very interested to hear him, hear him talk about J.P. Aaron Sebia, the, the Major League Baseball player, and his involvement in terms of, of going forward with this. And, you know, look, it, it's a very interesting time. In MMA, I'm interested to see what happens going forward 
with the MMA AA. I am hoping to try to get one of the five fighters that is involved with the MMA AA on next week's edition of the MMA Insiders podcast to get their perspective on what is going on with this. And, uh, you know, and obviously you, you heard the comments from Dana White uh, it, during my conversation with Bjorn Rebney, and uh, I'm sure we're going to hear much more comments about that going forward. And, you know, a, as I've said pretty much all of 2016, it's such an interesting time in the world of MMA and uh, very interested to see what happens. So I really do appreciate Bjorn Rebney giving me the time and uh, talking about what is going on with him and the Mixed Martial Arts Athletes Association. Of course, you want to follow me on Twitter, at Jason underscore Floyd. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Just search the MMA Insiders. And uh, on iTunes, I really would appreciate if you would rate and review this podcast. I will be making my announcement on my guest co-host coming up here in the next couple of days, so be on the lookout that on my Twitter account, at Jason underscore Floyd. Of course, you can always check out this show, RadioInfluence.com, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, iTunes, and Stitcher. Radio Influence brings you the best in digital media broadcasting. When it comes to sports, we've got experts like national sports radio host Rich Herrera, the fabulous sports babe, former Major League Baseball manager Kevin Kennedy, and former Bellator matchmaker Sam Kaplan. Want a good laugh? And go on the beach with Pants and Roller Girl, or just LOL with Nancy Alexander. And when it comes to real life, Dangerous Conversation with Scott Ledger and Beyond the Badge with Vincent Hill will make you think. When it comes to what you want, Radio Influence has you covered. Find our programming on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and RadioInfluence.com.